And join me please in prayer. Gracious Lord Jesus, we stand before you today as your humble people. We just acknowledge the song that we sang, talked about approaching you on our knees. And in ancient times, it is true, your servants approached you on their knees with their faces to the ground, realising the appropriateness of approaching you with humility and unpretentiousness. Lord, we stand today not because we assume any inherent goodness or because we don't need to be humble before you or because we can stand in our own strength but because you, mighty God, have raised us up, have lifted us and put our feet on the solid ground. We say with the psalmist, we wait patiently for the Lord. You turn to us and heard our cry. You lifted us out of the pit, out of the mud and the mire you set our feet on a rock and gave us a firm place to stand. You put a new song in our mouths, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Father, we we acknowledge that prayer in the Psalms today. Lord, you know that we continue to face uncertain times. We've experienced change in our world of a kind and of a pace that we've never experienced before. Many of us are tired, Our familiar worlds have changed. There is some uncertainty and confusion about what the future looks like. Habits that we were familiar with have changed, sometimes for the good, but at other times not necessarily for the good. Lord, help us not to fear the future, but to boldly trust that you are in control when our emotions plunge us down. And at times when we can't pray, And when we don't know what to say, help us to say, be still and know that you are God. Be our comforter, our healer and bring us peace. Lord, we acknowledge that the world we minister into has changed as well and the patterns and strategies and programs that we've used in the past may not be appropriate for the future. We thank you for what has gone before, for the faithfulness of your servants who have sustained a witness to Jesus Christ through their humble activity. Lord, our desire is to live as a Christ-centred church that is led by your Spirit to love God, to love others and share the Gospel in our community and in the world. Lord, one of the opportunities the experience of the past 10 months or so has provided is that of rethinking some of the core elements of church life. For a season, our capacity to gather was taken away and yet the church did not cease to exist because while our gathering is important, Lord, uh, it's not the only expression of church nor is it what defines the church. Indeed, the moment that we believe this, we lose some of the richness and diversity and opportunity that you want for your people. We've had the opportunity, Father, to reflect on our neighbourhoods in a new way because we were grounded there for an extended period of time, time which we might normally be elsewhere and we found you there. In some cases we got to know people we lived among and yet previously had had little more than facial recognition with and we found you there. Our world shrank internationally and nationally and, and even locally as we couldn't travel like we were accustomed to and yet we found you there as well. In many respects, our lifestyle became closer to that experienced by Christians in the first century and our capacity to minister to our community was shaped by similar circumstances to theirs. 
And Lord, we find ourselves asking this question again, what was it that made the church so effective in the first century? How did they have the impact that they did? And the answer, I believe, is found at least in part in your determination to establish the church and not a religious organisation or a tradition or a meeting on a Sunday, but a people who were passionate about you, embedded in their community, and the gospel rode along the social rails of community and friendship and care and hospitality. You, Lord Jesus, said that people would know that we are your disciples by our love for one another and by our love for others. And Lord, today, we want to recapture that and be part of the explosion in the growth of the kingdom that will happen when you revive your church and yet we know how easily we fail in this area. We subcontract out the task of being your witnesses to others. We are so focused on our own needs that we have little time for others. Lord, forgive me for the occasions when I fail to love, to care, to be transparent, to be real. Lord, you are with us now and we want you to speak to your people. We ask that your spirit might move amongst us in a special way today. Bless us. O Lord, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may have a seat and make yourself comfortable, not too comfortable. (laughs) While you're doing that, we're going to turn our attention to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verses 1 through to 5. First paragraph there in the Gospel of John. John wrote these words, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it or overcome it. Let me ask you a a simple question as we come to think about this passage and this will be easy for some of you because perhaps you're a visitor or unfamiliar with others that you're sitting with. If you were to just look around now and I invite you to do that, please don't express any shock or horror um, (laughs) as you see someone. (laughs) If perchance you were in a context where you never met any of the people that you were with before, let's just say we were at a conference for example or we were in an unfamiliar place, And as the conference leader, I said to you, I would like you to introduce yourself to those you are around. You can tell the person that you're going to talk to only three things. We've got 30 seconds to do this. Now, don't do it, but just imagine that you've got to do that. What are the three things that you would tell the other person? You've never met the other person. You're not wearing any name tags. Uh, One person amongst us is wearing a name tag. Uh, none of the others are. Uh, what are you going to tell about? What are the three things? Just give that some thought for 10 seconds and then I'll ask someone to just feed back for me what are the, uh, the top three things that we would share. The sound of brain activity is deafening. <laughs> okay, that's long enough. What are the top three things? Somebody just call out. What's the first thing you're likely to tell the person? Thank you. Is everybody happy with that? Yeah, okay. What about the second thing? We've got family, we've got where you live. 
I'm just one of the things I should just say, and I'm going to let the coffee thing go. <laughs> For those of you who um, were here last week, and I wasn't, but I have seen the service, uh, this is an AFL free zone today in this service, okay? <laughs> so if perchance you were going to tell the person which football team you're going for, well, that's off the radar, forget it. <laughs> All right? So we've had the name, we've had where do I live, what was the other suggestion? Our family. What about the third thing? Yeah, job, interests, what you do with your time. Libby, what were you going to say? You might ask that question, yeah. Any other suggestions? Yes, the, the scope of opportunity sort of broadens as you go. But normally, isn't it true, the first thing we would say to someone is our name. Why do we do that? What's the significance of your name? Is it just something that your parents gave you? Well, probably, yes, it is. <laughs> you didn't get a choice in that space, did you? Although some people say, oh, I didn't really like that one, so I'm going to change it. Uh, what's the purpose behind your name? It does. It, it's kind of like a handle, isn't it, that other people are able to have. And it, it, it is so significant in the context of hospitality. Isn't it a wonderful thing when you meet someone for the very first time and you're talking to them, what's your name? Hi, Liz, my name's David. 13 seconds later, I've forgotten what her name was. <laughs> and that's difficult and embarrassing. I have, even in my role, tried strategies to remember, you know, the, the old uh, say their name three times so that it gets embedded or try and link it to some characteristic or physical feature or something like that so that you remember. But name is significant. In our culture, generally speaking though, it's just a handle, isn't it? It's chosen because our parents like it. As far as I know, that was the reason that my name was given to me. I don't think it was because of some significant reflection on, uh, on King David in the Bible and so uh, the name given for that reason or uh, because I think, um, I haven't checked this out, I think it's my name means beloved of God, it might have had something to do with that. I'm not sure about my brother's name, that's not a biblical name. Uh, but in ancient times, names mean a whole, meant a whole lot, different, a whole lot more, didn't they? In our culture, our names are really just a title, uh, uh, an identifier. Significant, I don't know whether you've ever had the embarrassing experience of being in a public context and hearing your name and you didn't know where it came from and then someone said your name, said, oh, hello, and they weren't even talking to you. It was another person with the same name. Has that ever happened to anyone here? Yes, well, if you've got a name like mine, there's a chance that that'll happen, even in the church. I think there's about eight other Davids in here. But in other cultures, back in, uh, in ancient times, names were a lot more than just a tag or a handle. They described who the person was related to. They could describe what the person did. In fact, some surnames are derivatives of, of that very thing. Sawyer, Smith, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and they were also often uh, locally connected, so they described where the person came from. And so as we think about the names given to Jesus, it's interesting as we today come to a short series where we will be thinking about some of the names that were given to Jesus. As we think about the name Jesus, that was a very common name, a, a kind of a handle name in his culture, interestingly enough. If you have a look at the Hebrew, the name is actually Yeshua, 
uh, it was um, very common as a young person growing up in the church, I was taught to revere the name of Jesus and it would have been considered a significant, almost uh, mortal sin to use the name of Jesus as blasphemy and fair enough too. Uh, but I, I got a bit of a shock and a surprise as a young person to realise that in Jesus' day there were lots of other Jesuses. Yeshua was as common in Yeshua's day as David is today. If, if I had my mobile phone, which I don't keep here since Doug rang me in the middle of the service the other day, um, <laughs> and, I, and, I pulled out, and I've turned it down too, just by the way, uh, if I pulled out my phone and looked up in my phone directory, I did this and I wrote this down, I think, I, I think there's actually, just let me check, yes, there's 12 other Davids in my directory apart from myself, at least eight of them here. If Jesus pulled out his mobile phone in his day, just imagine that that was the reality, he would have probably had at least 12 other Yeshuas in his phone as well. It was a very common name. But there were many other names that were given to Jesus, to Yeshua in the Greek as well and today we're going to look at one of a number leading up to Easter and uh, uh, on Easter Sunday culminate with uh, the name Light of the World. So over the next couple of weeks we'll look at uh, today the name that we find here in John, uh, the Logos, the Word, uh, next week and we'll flag this in a few moments, Emmanuel, uh, Son of Man, Son of God and so on through to Easter. The name uh, Logos we find here in the Gospel of John, in English it's translated as the word, in the beginning was the word, the original language says Logos and the word Logos sounds Greek, doesn't it? And there's a reason for that, it's because it is Greek, <laughs> makes kind of sense. Uh, it was a very, very common word in Greek. In fact, it was a word that literally meant word but in ancient Greece, the word logos actually meant more than just word. It was actually a word or a title applied to what the Greeks understood as a kind of life force, a kind of, I'm not quite sure how to describe it because they found it hard to describe, a kind of a living, active force in the world that created things and held things together, the logos. They weren't quite sure what it was or how to nail it down. Uh, where's Macca? I saw him before. He's got a hat on. He was ushering us in. Is his hat still on? He's got Star Wars on his hat. You know, it's kind of like... Thank you. He's got his hat back on now. You can take it off again. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like the force, be with you kind of stuff. The Greeks had this... The, the word I want to use is amorphous. It's kind of without shape kind of force that worked in the world. The logos. And Aristotle came along and Aristotle was uh, one of the Greek philosophers. He actually sharpened up that word. Um, he applied the logos to arguments and reason and understanding. And the logos, he said, was when you reason, when you argue, it's, it's how you present. He actually married that word logos to two other words and Shanley will be able to help me out here. Uh, pathos and ethos. When you're arguing a case or when you're presenting something, you use the, the logos, the ration, the pathos, uh, the emotions and the ethos, the morals in presenting your argument. But then along came John who took this word logos and redeemed it from its Greek and rebadged it and renamed it and made it something new. Now just let's park that thought for a second because 
just indulge me here for a second. I want to go down another road for a moment which has little to do with the topic but a lot to do with our ministry. A moment ago I said to you uh, that John actually took that word logos and he redeemed it. He, he, he made it a, a, a word that focused on Jesus Christ. And that's really significant because one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about just recently is um, the, the manner in which we think about salvation and the way that God is in the business of redeeming. As Christians, we talk about how God has redeemed us. Salvation is all about being redeemed from sin, right? But in the West, we've made a, a, a grave error and the grave error is this, we have tended to think about salvation as something that applies very spiritually and very personally to us at the exclusion of the world around us. And so we sing songs, we don't hear, but um, I know we sing songs that talk about um, uh, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim as though they don't matter. Do you realise that's actually an unbiblical position? Because God is in the business of redeeming people, individuals, spiritually, but his world as well. Now this might sound like new or confronting theology for some of you perhaps because it has not been popularly uh, or commonly taught. Uh, however, it is deeply ingrained in the scriptures. We tend in the West to separate the spiritual from the physical but God is interested in both. Jesus came as a man after all and lived amongst us. We'll talk about this as, um, as we come to communion this morning. The plan of salvation is a very personal one in so much as it impacts us, it turns our heart to God, it redeems us but God's plan for salvation involves our neighbourhood, our community, our city, our workplaces. Have you thought about that? And so as I look around, I can say to you that you, Richard, can I pick on you? You've got broad shoulders. Uh, you go to work over there at that, um, that hardware store that we can't name publicly because we're being recorded here this morning. You go carrying the fragrance of Christ into that place. God wants to impact that place. And you, Greg, who go and, uh, and do what you do selling houses, God wants you to go into that place carrying the fragrance of Christ and redeem that space. And I could look at just about anybody here and say exactly the same. Wherever you go through the week, whatever you do through the week, God is interested in redeeming that space, redeeming that context. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Because we often think that it's only salvation is just between me and God. God is in the business of transforming neighbourhoods, of transforming communities and he has called us as his people to be part of that. And to say, uh, sorry, to reduce the gospel to nothing more than the personal spiritual plan of salvation actually minimises God's ongoing relationship with the world and it minimises Jesus' authority over the world. And it is uh, a failure to recognise, as I've said, the gospel is about redeeming neighbourhoods, workplaces and communities. Uh, the good news of Christ is about the redemption of our city, the real world. 
Uh, and I suspect that our neglect in this area communicates that we are not interested in the real world or the conditions that affect so many people. It's a sentiment that, was, uh, that prompted a lady by the name of Dorothy Sayers, who was a friend and peer of C.S. Lewis, who will be known to you, who said, why would anyone remain interested in a religion that seems to have no interest in nine-tenths of his life? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? God is concerned about our world. God is going to create a reunification in creation. Ultimately, we see that through Revelation. That's um, a, a slight deviation from the topic today. Let's get back to the significance of this name Logos. What is the significance of Logos in terms of who Jesus is? What does it mean to say Jesus is the Word? Well, the first, uh, the first thing we could say about this is it speaks about the pre-existence of Jesus. Now, this is a long word, pre-existence. That simply means that Jesus existed before anything else was created. Rather interestingly, if we step back from the New Testament for a second, this might throw the camera work out of alignment a bit, Doug, but I'm going to just walk around for a minute. If we think about the thing, let, let's go back to the first century for a second. Can you do that? Just come back with me uh, to just a handful of years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, as the Christians gathered, what was it that they looked to that most vindicated Jesus' claims to be Messiah? In other words, what was it that they said, here is the evidence, the proof, the undeniable reality that Jesus was who he said it, well, he was? What did they look to? There's a hint. <laughs> it was, of course the cross and resurrection and so what we see if we have a look at the new testament is in the uh, in the book of acts what is the core of the preaching in acts it's the death and resurrection of jesus right what is the core of paul's preaching and teaching it's the death and resurrection of jesus that was the defining thing that was the thing that set jesus apart from any who had ever gone before him but then there were some in the church that said, okay, that's true, but what was there in Jesus' life before this that demonstrated he was who he said he was? What was there in his actions, in his, uh, in his work, in his ministry? And so along came Matthew, Mark and Luke, who wrote the Gospels, to answer that question. And Matthew, Mark and Luke looked at the evidence in Jesus' life the manner in which he taught with authority, the miracles that he performed, the blind who were able to see again, the, the dead who were raised back to life. And they said, look at this, in his life we see this evidence that he was who he said he was. So we've moved from uh, the early preaching in Acts, the testimony of Paul who focused on Jesus, on the cross, on his resurrection, on the coming of the life-giving spirit of Christ, Theologically, we moved then to reflection on his life. And then there were some who said, if that's true, and this is true, what is there then before? What was there before? Through the What was the activity of Jesus? What was, where was Jesus in Old Testament times? I guess there's your question, isn't it? And so along came John, who said he was the Logos. An answer that John, sorry, an answer to the question that John answers most emphatically, because by identifying Jesus as the Logos, 
Uh, John was actually giving form and shape to that which the Greeks did not fully understand. Jesus is the one who was at creation. Jesus is the one who pre-existed everything. Jesus is the one who actually created because all things were created through him and by him and for him. The Logos had existed before creation and that demonstrates not only was he the one who created but that Jesus truly is God. And you can see this development that took place in the early life of the church culminating in John chapter 1, uh, a passage that was written, I don't know, maybe AD 70, somewhere around there, uh, identifying Jesus emphatically as God, as the one who has created. What is the significance of this? Well, some might say this is all a bit dry and boring. What is the point of talking about the pre-existence of Jesus? But it kind of works like this. If Jesus had been made, logically he would have had to have been made by somebody, right? And if he was made by somebody, he would logically then have to be uh, submissive to that other somebody. We're we're talking about God, of course. Uh, It works with anything. If I go out into my shed, for instance, and I, I make a piece of furniture, give me an example of something you'd like. A chair. That's a hard thing to make. All these designs. A handle. Okay, that's easy. <laughs> I'm going to make a handle. Just think about um, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 15, around about that place. Are you familiar with the sarcasm that there is in that passage? You know, Isaiah talks about the craftsman who takes the wood, he shapes it into the shape of a god. He uses some of it to shape it into the shape of a god. The other part of the wood, the leftover offcuts, he, he makes into a fire and he cooks his lunch and then he finishes shaping the same wood into a god and then he bows down and, bows down and worships it. Isaiah's laughing at the stupidity of this activity because we know if we make something, that thing actually serves us. It's submissive to us. And while it's true to say, and we just need to clarify this, that Jesus always submitted to the will of the Father, he was in no sense under the Father in terms of his authority or power or capacity. He was always equal with the Father. If Jesus had been created by God, here's the point, he would be less than God and if Jesus had been less than God, his claims claims to be equal with God would be ridiculous, spurious, silly. For him to say, I am God, basically means he had to exist in the same way that God existed. And there's been some fights in the church over this, over the years. You probably missed this one. It happened way back in 300 AD. (laughs) There was a a character by the name of Arius, you might have heard of Arius, Arianism, uh, who taught that Jesus was... Uh, distinct from the Father, begotten from the Father, the first, the first one born in creation and so was not equal to God. And the church, well, let me tell you, the church had a first-class Barney about this because it's that significant. Because if Jesus is not equal to the Father, then what he's done on the cross isn't going to work for us. And Arius and the church came head-to-head and had an enormous fight And he was ultimately declared a heretic in that space and yet even today Arianism, this idea of the subordination of Jesus to the Father continues. You go and join a cult like the Jehovah's Witnesses, I'm not recommending that you do that but if you do examine that teaching, Arianism is alive and well in that space because they believe that Jesus is begotten from the Father, he is not equal to 
the Father. So the pre-existence of Christ is significant. Flowing from this is this, this idea that uh, Jesus created all things. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, a great place to go back to, we read all sorts of words that kind of sound very familiar to our ears as we read John. In John it says, In the beginning was the word. Uh, in Genesis it speaks like this, Genesis 1 Verse 3, God said, let there be light, Genesis 1, 6, and God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, Genesis chapter 1, verse 9, and God said, by his word, God created the earth, by speaking the word, by his word, God created. John identifies Jesus as the word, the one who created, the one who was active in creation. Logically then, what follows from that is the supremacy of Christ over all things. We go to a passage like, Colossians chapter, uh, chapter 1 verse 15 which says these things, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, not the one that was born first but the one who has equal rights as a firstborn, the one who has all of the authority that a firstborn has. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is from, uh, sorry, he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning uh, and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's a passage that speaks very eloquently, doesn't it, of the supremacy of Christ. Everything that we see has been created by Jesus. Everything that has been created by Jesus by implication is under his authority. Nothing is outside his capacity to, 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 uh, to have authority over it. And significantly there in Colossians, it speaks about all things being held together by him. This is a, a wonderful sermon topic for another day, but it's a fascinating verse. Everything is held together by him. I've speculated on occasions what would happen in uh, this environment that we live in where our um, governments, governments, plural, are marginalising or at least seem intent on marginalising Christians and embracing a fairly militant secularism, I wonder what would happen in our world if perchance every Christian who served in some capacity in their community, who volunteered their time, who delivered meals on wheels, who visited the elderly, who worked in hospices, who worked in hospitals, who did whatever, if everyone just said, all right, that's it, not doing it anymore, it's all yours. You know, a few years ago, uh, there was a bit of a push, this was back in the 80s, so it's a while back, there was a bit of a push to... to uh, change the taxation regime for churches and it was Bob Hawke who said don't touch the churches because they do stuff that we'll never be able to do. Even he realised uh, that there is so much benefit for the community in what Christians do in society. What would happen if we withdrew? What would happen if Jesus said I'm not holding everything together? Can you imagine the chaos that would be unleashed? 
some years ago, I used to work in Port Moresby from time to time, and let me just tell you, driving around in that city at night, in the parts where we were, it was frightening. Have you, uh, are you familiar with some of those apocalyptic movies? You know, there's no power, there's fire drums by the, there's dangerous looking characters standing there swinging machetes, that sort of stuff. That's what Port Moresby was like. And uh, we didn't go out at night very often for that very reason. If you imagine if Jesus just withdrew his oversight, his capacity, his holding things together, our world would not survive. That's the truth and simple reality. For in him all things are held together. And then finally, perhaps um, as significant as any of the other things associated with calling Jesus the Logos, is, is that he is the final and greatest word of God. He is, in a sense, God's, God's greatest revelation, the final word on the subject. There is none other that's going to come after and say, well, actually, I've got a new revelation, an additional revelation, a fresh revelation. The Scripture does say to us that there will be yet more light, that will break uh, more light and truth that will break forth. Uh, there are still things that God will reveal to us, but it will never, ever supersede the revelation of Christ. It will never be in conflict with the revelation of Christ because Jesus is God's greatest word, his finest word. There were times, if you go back into the Old Testament, uh, where God speaks with authority, you remember some of those passages, thus says the Lord, there were times where God's voice boomed out. Sounds good in here too. There were times where God whispered, whether his voice was a voice of booming authority or a quiet whisper, it always carried that same authority and power, the same authority and power that we find in Jesus, the Word. This collides head-on with these pseudo-prophets that live in our world who say, oh, I've got this new thing that, uh, that I can reveal to you. Uh, those need to be dealt with with the contempt that they deserve because Jesus is the ultimate and the final Word of God. Well, over these next few weeks, we're going to continue to have a look at the names given to Jesus. It's useful, I think, to start today with Logos because it talks about his pre-existence before creation. Next week, we move to uh, what is really significant for us, God with us, Emmanuel, and the encouragement there is in knowing that God is with us. Let us take a moment to pray, though, and then we come to communion where we might think for a few moments about God's investment in our world, in redeeming us and redeeming our world. But let's pray. Father, we want to thank you. Lord Jesus, we come to worship you. That is the correct and right and appropriate response in this space as we've reflected on who you are. Jesus, you are the pre-existing God. You are fully God. You are no less than God. You are the creator, the one who brought everything together, the one who oversees everything, the one who has authority over everything. And Lord, we live in a world and we're part of a world that is in open rebellion against you, uh, leaders, tyrants, dictators who shake their fist in defiance against you. But God, they will submit to you because your word tells us that at your name every knee will bow, whether in this day or in days to come, that will happen with certainty, with absolute certainty. Lord, we don't gloat about that. We don't take any, uh, any uh, inappropriate joy in that space. We're grieved by that, Lord, because we know what rebellion against you means for those people, for those people that they lead, whatever that context might be. Lord, for us, those who have, 
heard the quiet whisper of your spirit in our hearts, those who have experienced your love and grace and forgiveness, we turn to you in awe and worship because you are the God who is worthy of worship. Lord Jesus, we exalt your name, we honour you and praise you for who you are. Amen. We're going to turn uh, to a time of communion today. Before we do that, I do need to just do a check-in with you and I'm not sure this is going to be easy. Has everybody received a communion pack? If you've not received a communion pack, if somehow you managed to sneak past the security guards at the door, uh, could you just pop your hand up and we'll make sure we get one to you? Okay, you three guys, which door did you come in? you were here way early which I just want to commend and say well done you. So three down the front here there's a couple over this way, thank you Ian you, um, you've got a spare um, unfortunately and Libby over here, we can't share the elements. Now just as um, you receive those let's again this is the second time we've been through this process so for some of you it may be new the elements are self-contained you'll need to peel off the little clear plastic from the top, the sound of music to our ears. I can't do it because my fingers are slippery. That will reveal for you the little wafer that we're using and then in a few moments we'll take the cup so you just might make that preparation. A few moments ago we talked about um, the call that there is in the scripture and I, I probably sold that a little bit short in the sense that I think there are a lot of Christians in our world, a lot of people in our church who are totally invested in the work that God is doing in redeeming us uh, as individuals and redeeming our community. One of the strongest evidence for God's concern for us is that he created us as both physical and spiritual beings and longs that we might be reconciled to him uh, at both levels. As we come to communion, if we did ever need evidence to support the idea that God has invested in the redemption of the world, including all that he's created, it has to be found in this idea that Jesus came and lived amongst us as a person, a flesh and blood person, a real person, a physical person, a person who experienced pain and trauma and difficulty in the same way that we have. And his death was a physical death. The scripture describes quite graphically the death of Jesus. His resurrection was a physical resurrection. Some tried to argue that he was just raised spiritually, but he appeared bodily and the scripture tells us that. Uh, this redemption that Jesus has won on the cross was sufficient to save us spiritually but also to redeem the world around us. Communion is often couched as a very individualistic act but today as we eat and drink together let me encourage you to consider the places where you will be found through this week, whatever context it might be, your workplace, your school, your home, whatever the environment is, for there God is found and God wants to redeem those places as well and bring his light and his love and his goodness and his grace into that context. 
Today we take this wafer as a reminder of the body of Christ that was given for us. Let me encourage you to eat this now and take a few moments to quietly reflect on some of those thoughts. Let's eat together. And as Jesus gathered with his disciples, he took the cup. And as they shared the cup, in the same manner, he reminded them that the bread was representative of his body given for them. The cup, he said to them, was a reminder of his blood, a reminder of his blood given for them for the redemption of sin. Let's drink together as a sign of our unity in Christ. Father, we thank you again today for your call upon our lives. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love that took you to the cross. You are a good, good Father. That's who you are. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.